Welcome to episode 8 of the Bowtie and Blondie podcast. Thank you for joining us again this week. We appreciate it. As always, Katie and I will be taking you through some of the latest scientific discoveries. We've got our awesomely lame science jokes, questions from our listeners, and Katie's amazing fact of the week. We hope you enjoy. Hey, Katie. Hello. How are you this week? I'm all right, thank you. You? Yeah, not too, not too bad, not too bad. Good. So what have you been up to? Uh, well, actually, I bought myself a Fitbit this week because I was concerned that yeah. I was too stationary. So I have been obsessed with numbers <laughs> this week. Okay. <laughs> how, many, how many steps have you done today? Uh, today I have done 9,489. Wow. Okay. Um, I think <laughs> I have done... Uh, embarrassingly low 3,552 today and and I rarely since I've been on lockdown I rarely get above 6,000 which is is really bad um, mainly I think because when I go out and do my exercise I tend to cycle and I don't think it registers that type of thing uh, I've got a new one where it would register the exercise as cycling but I don't think that it wouldn't count it, it doesn't count over steps, no. But when I was at school, when I was at work, I was doing like 15,000 steps a day. So it's a massive decrease. No wonder I'm getting fat. That's one of the reasons why I thought I'd buy one because I found myself putting on weight. And I was like, no, I can't do this. <laughs> I know. It's like sat at a table doing online lessons and, and watching other people's online lessons. You just, you just sat still all the time. When I was teaching, I was moving around the whole, all the time, moving around and around and around. Yeah, I think both of us, we're quite... Um... We move a Absolutely. lot when we talk, yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, okay, right. So, uh, as always this week, we've got our two articles, so I'm going to kick off. Back to a paleontology uh, thing for me this week. So, a uh, really interesting uh, article came out this week. A uh, really interesting paper was published right in my area of expertise and my area of real enthusiasm, which is human evolution. So, I, uh, those who know my background... And for those who don't, I did a degree in uh, paleontology and uh, evolutionary biology and sort of specialised in human evolution, um, sort of uh, homo, homo genus and the Australopithecine genus, uh, things like that. So this article is really amazing. So, so for a long time, um, it, it's based on the fossil evidence we have, which is always quite sparse with humans because becoming a fossil was actually quite really tricky to do. It was always thought that um, humans... Homo sapiens, so us and our Neanderthal cousins, did overlap, but very, very briefly in, in terms of time. So it'd be kind of, it was often thought that humans moved up out of Africa, modern humans, Homo sapiens moved up out of Africa, and they encountered Neanderthals in Europe for a short period of time. Um, and we sort of often thought that we killed off a lot of them actually and um, we interbred with them that's 100% certain because if you look at our DNA we actually have some Neanderthal genes in our DNA the average uh, person of European descent has about 2.2 to 2.6% uh, of their genome is, is Neanderthal genes that doesn't sound very much <laughs> No, it's not. But actually, uh, I think some some of the analysis of those genes is uh, responsible for some of our allergies. So we've got Neanderthals to blame for some of our allergies. Damn my Neanderthal um, DNA. <laughs> <laughs> um, but actually, um, what what this study has thrown up um, is that humans were in Europe much earlier than we thought, based on new 
uh, tools, new flint tool evidence that has been found in Bulgaria. And this means we our cultures overlap with Neanderthals for far longer than previously thought. So they found these uh, these uh, flint tools in a cave uh, called Bacho Kuril, and uh, it conclusively shows, based on uh, dating of the of the rocks in the cave, that modern humans and Neanderthals were present at the same time for quite a few thousand years, maybe up to even eight thousand years. Wow. Um. So. Um, however, some have suggested not more than three thousand years. So this is this is big jump from 3,000 to 8,000 years. Um, so Neanderthals were roaming around in Ice Age Europe up until about 40,000 years ago, and they were eventually pushed south by modern humans arriving there, and they died out when extinct approximately about 25,000 years ago. Um, but um, it is absolutely, from this evidence, it seems that humans interacted with Neanderthals for a long period of time, and it seems to be that they exchanged uh, technology, they exchanged uh, cultural um, things as well. So one of the things I found here was, um, where is it, there we go. Team flip radiocarbon dating and tools suggested that remains dated between 46,790 and 42,810 years ago. Um, and they also did some mitochondrial dating of this of some of the uh, DNA that they found, and uh, it also came in around forty four thousand eight hundred thirty years uh, ago. Um, so they found uh, some animal remains, but they dated to forty seven thousand years ago. So really, really interesting. And uh, one of the leading professors in our country, uh, Chris Professor Chris Strinker, he chimed in on this. And he said that this is the oldest and strongest published evidence for a very early upper Paleolithic presence of Homo sapiens in Europe. Now, for those who don't um, understand what Neanderthals are, because I think Neanderthals have a bit of a, a dodgy reputation, you know, yeah. cartoons of like thick, uh, grunting cavemen with clubs bashing, you know, people over the heads and you know, Captain Caveman style. Yeah, and actually that that's very far from the truth. The anthos were actually quite sophisticated and we found quite a lot of um, burial sites with artefacts placed with the body showing that they they had some kind of understanding of the significance of death and losing loved ones. Um, they found early sort of musical instruments with Neanderthal, Neanderthal sites and, and actually that predate human homo sapien musical instruments. So it's thought that perhaps Neanderthals introduced musical instruments to humans when they met as well. So they're actually quite sophisticated. And they're also, we're not descended from Neanderthals, which is a very common misconception out there in the public. We're actually evolutionary cousins. So like um, children tend to share grandparents with their cousins okay so um i myself and my cousin we share one grandparent well humans and neanderthals share an evolutionary grandparent called homo heidelbergensis and homo heidelbergensis was a descendant of homo agaster which was the first human ancestor to leave africa so homo agaster left africa and spread across europe and asia uh in asia it, it Homo agaster kind of evolved into a species we call Homo erectus. And in Europe, uh, evolved, and the ones that stayed behind in Africa, evolved into Homo heidelbergensis. And Homo heidelbergensis 
diversified, evolved into two separate species, Neanderthals in Europe and the Homo sapiens in Africa. And Neanderthals did very, very well in the Ice Age of Europe. They were very um, successful. They are perfectly well adapted for that environment. They're very short, stocky, muscular, broad, wide noses, and very, very tough. And Homo sapiens in, in Africa uh, were very well adapted to the hot, dry conditions in Africa, but very, very close to going extinct, actually. Um, about 200,000 years ago, um, Homo sapiens were very close to going out for good. There are very, very few, only a couple of hundred of Homo sapiens on the planet because Africa was in a, a very, very dry spell at that time in a big drought. But when that drought ended, um, the Homo sapiens that survived were the strongest and the fittest. They then spread out from Africa and moved into Europe and encountered Neanderthals. And like I said at the beginning of this, initially it was, well, it was briefly, but this, this report talks about... Um, this actually being a much longer cultural exchange, which may explain why we've acquired the genes that we have, because that probably would have taken some time to work its way through the gene pool. But yeah, so really interesting article, and it, it kind of just shows actually we have so much more to discover about our own evolutionary past. All the time, new fossil discoveries are coming out, revealing new ancestors and new new branches on the family tree. And, 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 and it never changes the whole idea about our evolution but it adds extra information extra layers to what we know about our evolution which is always fascinating definitely so yeah i love that that's it's always strange to think that humans nearly went extinct because africa africa yeah. was going through a drought i think that's insane yeah i always love teaching yeah, about that, human that, evolution that, as well when we get to watch the bbc uh program walking yeah. with cavemen oh, i love it in the um uh the soon-to-be redundant topic of uh, shipping imagination. Oh, of course. Oh, I'm going to miss that topic. It's all going now. It's all going. So it's a shame. But yes, we're, we're trying to incorporate it into any new topics because it is very fascinating. Highly recommend it to all the listeners. Brilliant show. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so what have you got for us, Katie? So uh, I've gone a little bit off topic this time. Uh, so I've actually found something a bit more geeky. And this article really sounds like it should be coming from that uh, university in Big Hero 6, if anyone's seen that movie. Yeah. Right it really on. does sound like it comes from that, because uh, this article came from a peer-reviewed journal called The Physics of Fluids. And they've unveiled a new robot that will let you climb up, uh, climb up walls as like a kind of slow-motion Spider-Man which I thought was really awesome. <laughs> and it uses water and suction cups, but not webs like Spider-Man. Uh, so there have been similar robots and contraptions and things like this before, but uh, this one even works on bumpy surfaces, whereas before, the old kind uh, used a suction cup-style contraption that only worked on smooth surfaces because it needed that complete connection uh, between the surface yeah. and the cup, which would then suck all of the air out of the of the suction cup creating a vacuum of low pressure which created the stick uh, to move it you would need to pump air back into it to release the vacuum and then you can move the cup uh, but this sorry but that one always needed a nice smooth surface as I said so it would not never work on say like bricks to climb up a building uh, and I've only ever seen them before where they're uh, human operated it required a human to push the buttons to start and stop the vacuum in the suction mm -hmm. cup but yeah and like, like on glass buildings and things yes. like that on, on, on glass, yeah, yeah but this one uh, can even work on rough surfaces because it uses water which is going to sound weird but bear with me uh so the engineer came up with this idea while he was stirring a drink imagine that 
stir in a hot chocolate and you just come up with this amazing idea that will let you climb up walls. Uh, so he saw that the rotating flow of the liquid maintains its shape where the center of the swirl looks like it's uh, sunken in as the fluid gets pushed out to the edge. So he created this uh, six armed robot with a arm that has a suction cup device at the ends that uses the water. So the end of each arm has the suction cup and each of those suction cups, if you like, has a fan inside that spins around and pushes the air and water out to the sides, which will then create the seal around the rough surface. And a vacuum would suck out the air that was in the middle of the liquid cyclone. Uh, so the f where was I? Yeah, so it sucks out all the water and it creates that stick. Uh, they've tested this on a block of concrete and they've tested it and it can hold a full grown man of 10.6 stone. Okay. Yeah, pretty good. Uh, it is really, that's, really that's slow amazing. on rough surfaces because it actually climbs up the wall on its own as well. Each Because each of the six arms moves independently. So it's kind of like how an ant walks where it moves three but keeps three of them still. So it can climb up yeah, the wall yeah. independently. Uh, and they're thinking that maybe one day it will be used for things like cleaning or maybe doing repairs or taking supplies up to very high places. Uh, right now, I think they're oh. thinking of using drones and things like that. But there will be some places where drones aren't allowed to fly. Maybe they can't fit or just won't be able to carry the object. Yeah. And sometimes you need, if it's to rescue someone, you need, uh, you need that human interaction, that reassurance if you're getting up to, to someone to try and get them down from a burning Absolutely. building that's or a, something. Yeah, that's a very good point. I yeah. didn't think of that. And uh, I see that there's a video on the article, so I'll put the article onto the Instagram oh, page and people can check out the video. It's pretty cool. Um, but, yeah, you can see as that technology improves, it'll probably get faster as well and, and, and better and better. And, you know, who knows what we'll see. Like people leaping up buildings like Spider-Man. <laughs> I just thought it was quite an interesting idea, using water yeah, to climb up a building. It's just, yeah. I don't know how they come up I, with these ideas. I, I, <laughs> I'm not sure I'm brave enough to test it, to be honest, but uh, I'm sure there are people out there willing to give it a go. Um, I might go a foot off the floor. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> okay, great. Right. Name size jokes time. So, time for cringeworthy science Bring jokes for this week. Okay, you ready for these? Right. Brace yourselves. What did the male stamen say to the female pistol? I've got no idea. I, I like your style. Uh... <laughs> Don't laugh. Okay, this, this... You're making it worse. <laughs> this one's... <laughs> These ones are even better. This one, this one's great. Right, what's the fastest way to determine the sex of a chromosome? No idea. Pull down its genes. <laughs> I told you they're lame. Yeah. Well, I'm seriously running out of of science jokes. So when 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 we wrap this up when, and we move into season two, I think we may have to uh, find another <laughs> section here because I think. We're wearing thin on quality science jokes now. <laughs> Not that they were ever. <laughs> okay, right. So um, we had a question from our, our audience um, this week, and it's a really, really interesting question. Um, 
the question comes from Beth on the Sherbrooke campus in year 10. Um, Beth wants to know what makes us gay? To be honest, I don't think she'll be so, the only one thinking that question. No, the, uh, in fact, when I started doing some research around it to answer the question, it, it, it really kind of got me interested in the whole thing. Um, for a long time, there's been this mythical search uh, in this area for what's been known as the gay gene. Uh, a lot of people wanted to kind of have it that there was some kind of one gene in the body that you either have had or didn't have that meant you were either gay or you weren't. Um, so uh, last year, so beginning of two, well, late 2018 into 2019, a a massive, massive study was carried out, biggest study ever um, looking at sexuality and genetics. And it was published in October 2009. And this is probably the most recent piece of scientific work on here. Um, and it was undertaken by a, a range of researchers who themselves, some were, um, uh, were gay. And um, they found that basically there is no gay gene. Okay, and this study, this study was done with like 408,000 men or wow. women uh, from across, across Britain. Uh, data came from two small independent studies using data compiled from 23andMe, the um, genetic testing um, company that uh, the public can use, and a few other sources of data as well. And I analysed this data really carefully, and what, what became clear, there, there isn't really a single gay gene. Homosexuality seems to be, from a genetic point of view, multiple genes involved in it it's not what you can't pinpoint one single thing that determines whether someone is gay or but it not. still is down to genetics so, well uh, yes i was just coming to that so but also also what this this study seems to show is that it's also very much down to society environment um experiences when, when in, in your earlier life uh in the early years of your life combined with having certain variants of many different genes across your genome so one thing that's concluded from the study is that actually means that it's far more natural to be homosexual than just simply having a gay gene um it's it's a more because though anyone who understands genetics and i've just done this with my year 10 class is that what you are is not just your genes it's the genes and the environment and and so the fact that homosexuality is also this way, part your, part many genes, part your environment, means it's it's incredibly natural, and this this stands up across all different um, uh, animals and and plant and plants and animals across the animal kingdom. Um, as far as I'm aware, there's there's no gay um, plants as far as I'm aware, but um, there there are many 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 gay uh, animals across many different groups so just for example just some mammals so uh, baboons bison brown bear brown rat uh the cats chimpanzee dolphin marmoset uh, dogs elephants fox giraffe goat horse koala lion orca panda raccoon and human uh birds uh, barn owl chicken common goal emu king penguin ostrich uh fish um green sword towel um jewel chick Chickly, I don't even know what that fish is. Mouth breeding fish, salmon, reptiles. Jesus, so this wow. is massive. So red tailed sink, gecko, gopher, um, broad headed sink, whip tailed lizard, all of these animals, and the list goes on. Insects, the list is hundreds. All of these 
animals uh, have been observed um, use, undergoing homosexual behaviour. So it, it seems to be that across all of all of the animal kingdom, um, a, a combination, as with nearly everything in our lives, a combination of our genes, many different genes working together, and our environment determines some part of what our sexuality is. So hopefully, Beth, that's kind of answered, but not answered your question, because there is no easy answer to it. But hopefully it's given you some kind of idea about how homosexuality fits in the animal kingdom. So it's very, very natural if every other animal goes through it as well. It's, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's, it, it, it's about as natural as any other yeah. characteristic have because it's a it's a gene and environmental thing which is pretty much everything that defines a living animal anyway so yeah it was really interesting and uh, i think there will always be people trying to do work on this for whatever agenda they might have but this is by far and away the most co uh, comprehensive study ever done so i think for now it seems to give us a fairly good idea about where we stand and where evolution comes into where homosexuality comes into play in the in the nature of our species yeah really interesting stuff so i hope that answers your question beth right then so it's time for amazing science fact of the week so take so, it away katie uh grasshoppers they have ears but they have ears on their bellies which i thought was kind of weird as soon as yeah on okay. their bellies uh, even young children without any real awareness of them they can point to their ears point to your eyes point to your nose so it's kind of weird that grasshoppers have yeah. ears on their bellies but they do and in adult grasshoppers their mm. eardrums are covered up and protected by their wings so that they don't damage them in any ways because it is actually really important to them and how they behave because uh, grasshoppers use sound to claim territory and to find mates so if a female grasshopper hears the song of a male grasshopper she can judge the size of the grasshopper before she goes to find him because larger males make a deeper sound and males can use it to claim territory as well because again if they're hearing a song from a rival male they can size them up am i going to win against this male because it's a higher pitch noise i'm going to go over there and shoo him off my territory wow yeah. amazing what vibrating particles yeah. in the air can do <laughs> yeah. uh, on their bellies imagine if, if imagine if humans had the clothes would have to look a little bit different wouldn't they Okay. How would you keep your glasses Sorry? on your face if you didn't have ears? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, well, they hang off. I mean, it's hard to imagine not having ears, <laughs> isn't it? Oh, yeah. Strange. Okay, right. Um, so, last, what have you been up to this week? Katie, in terms of entertainment, what have you been watching, playing, uh, reading? I've been reading a well-interesting book, actually, rereading, I should say. Uh, it was a book that was published on, uh, I think it was published on Google originally. It's a book called Wool, and it is brilliant. It's a whole society of people that live underground in a massive silo, and people aren't really sure what happened, why they're there, but they know that the outside world is really toxic. Uh, 
So yeah, it's about their discovery of the world around them, which is amazing. Highly recommend. Um, and I also, I'm very late to the party on this one, but I watched the movie version of Red Dwarf the other day on Dave, and it was hilarious. Okay. I loved it. Yeah, yeah, I love Red Dwarf. Yeah, I think it's probably I think it's probably run its um, time now, yeah, but, but... Uh, in its heyday, Red, Red Dwarf was absolutely yeah, hilarious and brilliant. Uh, one of the best episodes I think was when they they come back to Earth, but everything's yeah. travelling backwards in time. Yeah, backwards brothers, brilliant. Yeah, brilliant episode that one. I love that. So, if, guys, if you're out there, if you're listening, if you've never checked out Red Dwarf, do check out Red Dwarf. It's it's classic British comedy yeah. and sci-fi. I've been, yeah, well, I've been, I'm sort of running out of things, <laughs> getting to sort of week nine and 10 uh, of trying to find things to do. I'm kind of running out of things. So I sort of tried to, took a chance on something on um, Netflix. There was this uh, show on there called Into the Night and it's, it's foreign, it's dubbed. Uh, I don't, I tend to avoid those things because the dubbing tends to annoy me. I prefer just to have subtitles. So I, put, I, put, I put subtitles on as well. And the difference between the dubbing and the subtitles was actually yes. quite dramatic, which is quite big, really. Um, but um, it's basically uh, the, in an mm-hmm. airport, and um, it jump. This guy jumps onto a plane and fought with a gun and forces the plane to take off with the passengers on board, uh, saying that uh, if they don't get up into the sky and, and chase the night time, so get ahead of the sunrise, they're going to die because wherever the sun lands it's going to kill everyone so uh, as as you go through the season it transpires that um the the sun is emitting huge amounts of gamma radiation due to increased solar activity and anyone who's exposed to that it ionizes it's ionizing radiation so it completely destroys your dna so they basically have to stay ahead they're on an airplane they have to stay ahead of the the day all the time so they're flying from one airport to another airport filling a home fuel gathering supplies but then there's all the, the social and political dynamics of the people on the plane and the arguments and the, and the backstabbing That's and stuff awesome. and actually it's really really interesting it asks some really good questions and i know it felt sounds like i've spoiled it but i haven't because that stuff's all revealed really at the start of the, the first episode there's tons of there's tons of really good stuff being revealed so yeah i've been i've sort of been uh, no, it's a series. I think it's like six parts or something. Um, I, I binge watched it in a couple of days and um, in the evenings, and I really enjoyed it. It was actually quite good. So I might, there's a few more uh, dubbed sci-fi shows on now. I, th- I might, I might awesome. take a chance. It's opened on up that. your eyes. Yeah, it's opened up your eyes. So, sorry. Yes, absolutely. It has. Yeah. Okay. Right. So um, last week I I said about Star Wars trilogy. And I wanted people's opinions on um, what they feel was the best trilogy, because I think there's a big, diverse opinion out there. Haven't had a huge number of comments. Um, One of the comments was, I love the prequels. So the prequels are their favourite, followed by Obi-Wan is iconic. And I totally agree with that. I think Obi-Wan. Uh, Ewan McGregor is a highlight of the prequel trilogy as Obi-Wan Kenobi, and I can't wait for the standalone Obi-Wan Kenobi TV series that's coming to Disney Plus in a year or so's time. That's going to be amazing. Um, Someone else said that uh, they all have their strong and weak points, so I'm not sure. Um, So that's sort of just sitting on the fence there. (laughs) Um, But um, 
my my personal opinion is is um I think that the the original trilogy has its highlights for sure. Like Empire Strikes Back is probably the best of all nine films. Um but there are I think people drown the original trilogy with nostalgia, far too much nostalgia. Um and I I think the same thing happens with the prequels now for so children who people who were children like back in 1999 and the early noughties they now drown the prequels with the same amount of nostalgia because when the prequels first come out they were hated by adults and loved by children those children now have grown up and they love the prequels as their generations of star wars and i think the new trilogy that's out now isn't very well received by adults but again loved by children my son absolutely adores the new trilogy and, and as his his generation grow up they'll probably drown that trilogy with nostalgia as well and it blinds them to the flaws of the film films but if i had to pick a trilogy i would probably pick Oh, I would go for probably the prequel trilogy. I think, um, oh, simply because Revenge of the Sith and it's so it's so good. Um, but they they all have they all have their peaks. Now for this week, I've got a, a new debate, new new debate poll. Oh, or one other thing, I did put an Instagram poll on for whether people felt the prequels were better than the sequels, and that was a hundred percent for yes. So that was that was sort of kind okay. of agreeing with me a little bit there. Um, but this week, I want to flip to a completely different area of sci-fi. Um, any, anyone who has ever been taught by me or knows me knows I'm a big Doctor Who fan. Always, always have been. Even before the relaunch in, in 2005, I was a big fan of the old Doctor Who. I grew up in the 1980s with Sylvester McCoy as a Doctor, and that was pretty much when BBC had abandoned <laughs> Doctor Who and left it to rot. And it, it was just basically cheap and nasty um but that was my that was my childhood and when it came back in 2005 i was like so happy and, and i've been kind of obsessed with it ever since uh so what i wanted people's opinions on is who is i want i want the rank of the modern doctors so since 2005 so the 10th 11th 12th and 13th doctors um, so that's Christopher Eccleston as the tenth, David Tennant. Sorry, Chris Eccleston as the ninth, David Tennant as the tenth, Matt Smith as the eleventh, um, Capaldi as the twelfth, and um, Jodie Whittaker as the thirteenth. I, if you want to put the War Doctor in there, any listeners out there who know their Doctor, if you want to put the War Doctor in as a Doctor, I'll happily accept that within your list. I even know he was only in one episode. But I, my, anyone who knows me, and you can tell by the picture on our, our podcast, is that the 11th Doctor is, is my favourite. Matt Smith is by far and away my favourite. I absolutely love his interpretation of the Doctor, particularly in his first season. Uh, his youthful enthusiasm and uh, ability to convey a thousand years of knowledge and, and power <laughs> counterbalanced each other perfectly. And I thought it was just absolutely brilliant but i know that a lot of people have a lot of love for david tennant yeah i just just for me matt smith just had that it was that energy and vibrance combined yeah, with power or energy into it yeah for me. yeah so so i'm interested in i'm gonna put an image up on our, our instagram post our page and I want people to comment uh, their opinions about and their rank so rank the doctors and I'll put my rank up there 
it's modern doctors uh we'll leave out the ones prior to 2005 because it just gets the list gets a bit too long and complicated and i'm not sure if you look at the age demographic of our listenership i'm not sure many of them will have seen some of the old doctor who so um but they should because some of them are great right okay well that brings us to the end of this week's podcast Thank you thanks again much. katie for joining us yeah you will, will stay see safe you next week Bye. and you take care So, thanks for joining us again this week on the Boat Blow Time Blondie podcast. Don't forget to go on to Instagram, follow us on there, um, comment on your uh, ranking of the doctors since 2005. I'm really interested in hearing your opinions. Until then, stay safe and take care of yourselves. Bye bye. <laughs>